Good morning. There are two occasions in my life that I can recall when someone has asked me to fill in for them and then has supplied the text as well. Once was in 2010, a former pastor said that uh, he would not be able to preach the following Sunday. And I said, great, I've been thinking over some verses in my mind that I would like to preach upon. He goes, that's all well and good, but I really want you to preach on the text I was going to out of Hebrews chapter 12 on the discipline of the Lord. Thank you. <laughs> what an opportunity. So it came as a little surprise when David said, hey, I need you to fill in for me on Sunday, and I've already got the text chosen, Psalm 6, which has to deal with repentance and mentions of discipline as well. I think it's a theme that the Lord is trying to get across to me. So if you'll please stand with me, and we will go before the Lord this morning as we open up this word. It's printed in your program for you to read from there or open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 6. This is the first of the seven penitential psalms of David. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary of my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray. Most high and holy Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. and We ask that you would be pleased by your Holy Spirit to be here to teach and instruct us. Help us to hear from the words of David the necessity and importance of repentance and the assurance that we have by faith that you hear and forgive those who cry out to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may all be seated. There's a story that's told that's likely apocryphal. I've been disappointed many times in the past when I've told stories and then found out, oh, that wasn't true, such as that allegedly the uh, Jewish people would wrap a rope around the high priest's leg so that whenever he went into the Holy of Holies, if God struck him dead, they could drag him out. It sounds good. It helps to magnify the holiness of God. There's certainly an illustrative point to be gained from the story, but apparently it's completely fabricated and not accurate. After I told that story many a time, I found out, oh, it's likely not true. This story may, may not be true as well, but I thought it helped to illustrate some of the point today. And so I'm going to tell the first half of it. And then hopefully, as David Wamsley pointed out to me previously, I failed to tell the second half of it at at the end of a sermon, hopefully today I'll remember to tell the second half. Supposedly, allegedly, when Nicholas was Tsar of Russia, he had a very good and dear friend who came to him one day and sought an appointment, a commission for his eldest son to the military. Because Nicholas 
this friend so dearly, he eagerly granted his son's commission and appointed him commander of an outpost. The son, being a young man, was given to a certain vice, gambling. He had a huge habit and could not stop. Oftentimes at night, he would gather some of the other people together from the outpost, and they would engage in games of chance, and he would risk everything that he had, hoping to be able to win back fabulous fortunes. Of course, as is often the case, instead he lost a great sum of money. Convincing himself, though, that the major win was just around the corner, just after the next game, he pressed on until he had squandered all of his resources. Then he did what some have done in certain circumstances such as this. He thought to himself, there's a great sum in the treasury for the outpost. Surely I can borrow some of that money, engage in another game of chance, and perhaps win back some of what I've lost. You know what the outcome was? He kept borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. Until the night before a certain audit was to occur. And he realized that his great and heinous crime would certainly be found out. That night he stayed awake. He pulled out a ledger and began to write down all of the monies that he had pilfered from the outpost treasury. Adding up that horrific ledger. He came to a sum that was impossible for him to repay. He realized to his chagrin, they would certainly be discovered the next day, and the penalty would be execution. Lamenting his pathetic condition, he wept bitterly. And then he decided upon a course of action. His father would be humiliated and ashamed. His whole family name would be forever besmirched. There was no way he could endure to face such agony, so he would reach into his desk drawer, pull out a pistol, and end his life. But such was his grief and his tears that he slowly fell asleep. Allegedly, Nicholas had a habit of dressing in an officer's uniform and going out to inspect outposts in this manner, in a discreet way, without them being able to get forewarned that the czar was coming to check them out. He happened to be wandering the halls of this outpost that night and saw a light on at the end of the long hallway and wondered who would still be up after a curfew. And so he walked down the hallway, quietly opened the door, and looked in to see the young man asleep on his desk. He walked over and saw the ledger beside him. Reading the amounts that were written, he figured out what had occurred. And seeing those fatal words at the bottom, a great debt, who can pay? He instantly became incensed. How dare this traitor squander his money? He knew what he would do. He would seize him by the collar. He would call for armed guards to escort him to the brig. He would be hung at dawn as was befitting such a wicked act. 
this is a heinousness of sin. Only it's greatly compounded in our case. You see, the young man had sinned against his ruler, but his ruler was a fellow human being, subject to the same frailties and sinfulness as well. And even if the ruler did not suffer from the same vice of gambling, he suffered from other equally grotesque sins and vices. We play and trifle with sin today. We give it clever names. We degrade it to some sort of a disorder or a disease. We act as if it's no big deal. We mock the Puritans who are so puritanical in their naivete and their desire to pursue holiness and righteousness when we can so easily wink at sin and push it aside and excuse it. But God does not ever wink at sin. The Bible says he is so holy he cannot stand to look upon sin. He despises it. He hates it. He loathes it. And those who commit sin, even supposedly the most trifling, the smallest, the least amount, are guilty of a heinous crime, of a horrible insurrection, of a full-blown rebellion against the supreme majesty of the universe. And that carries with it an absolute sentence of death. When we begin to see sin as God sees it, we begin to understand why saints who have gone before us have felt so stricken with their own sinfulness. Let's look at the text and see what David has to say here. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The very first thing I want you to see is he does not say, O Lord, rebuke me not, nor discipline me. That's not what the text says. He says, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David does not ask that God would not rebuke, that God would not discipline. God, David asks only that God would be mindful of him and his weak condition. And that discipline and rebuke would be productive in his life to bring about true and genuine repentance and sorrow and contrition for his sin. In Hebrews 12, the text that I had to preach on before there, uh, the writer says wonderfully well that uh, those whom God loves, he disciplines. And if you are not disciplined of the Lord, it is because you are not his child. You are illegitimate. In this case, I love the old King James. You're a bastard. Frank, direct, and to the point. All the children of God will undergo discipline. But discipline is not meant to be something to destroy us. Rather, it is meant to be something that God uses as a tool to help save us. To preserve us. To draw us unto himself to conform us more and more unto the image of Christ. And so discipline is actually good for us. My father was very, very wonderful at discipline, I'm proud to say. 
He had a great knack for it. And I can remember he would sit us down. He had, it was easy for me to learn much about my Heavenly Father from watching my earthly father. Rarely did he ever catch me in a fit of anger and seize me up. Usually he would calmly sit us down and explain to us first what we had done wrong and why it was wrong. Those lengthy lectures that we wish would hurry and be over with so we could get on with the spanking and be done with it. And after he was finished, he would usually say something to the effect of, I'm only doing this because I love you. And I would think, if you love me, then don't do this. And then he would say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I would think, well, good. If it's going to hurt us both, let's just put away with it. Be done with it. I wouldn't say this out loud, though, for fear it might be a little bit harder. (laughs) Then he would spank us. And I remember thinking beforehand, I hate you. How could you spank me? How could you inflict pain upon me? I hate you. And something inside my heart would prick me and go, you liar. You love him. As soon as he takes you fishing again or does something fun with you, you'll say what a great dad he is. In fact, as soon as he takes you up in his arms after the spanking is over, you will say that you love him. He'd administer the punishment. And when he was done, he'd wrap his big arms around me and say, son, I love you. And I want you to grow up to be the kind of man that you're supposed to be. And one day you'll probably come back and thank me for doing this. But there's no way. Sure enough, I got married when I was young, so I was 21 years old. My wife and I moved out of the house. We set up our own lives. I looked around me and saw some people my age who were still struggling with all kinds of issues in life and how my dad had provided direction and guidance that helped me. And when we went back to my father's house for supper one night, I looked at him and said, Dad, you're right. Thank you for spanking me. He loved me, and that's why he spanked me. It's not a token of God's anger or wrath when God disciplines his children. It's a token of his love. It's an act of affection. It's kindness. It's generosity. It's goodness that moves God to discipline us. And while it doesn't seem pleasant at the time for certain, in fact, there's anything else I'd rather endure, I know that it produces the peaceable fruits of righteousness, as the writer of Hebrews says, so it's good that I should be disciplined. But David cries out here in in, in the discipline and in doubt, Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This is his heart's cry. Rebuke me by all means. Discipline me, but set boundaries to it. Measure it out appropriately. Let it come from a heart of love, from the heart of a father, and not from a God who is angry and ferocious with me and determined to destroy me for my sins. He doesn't deny his sin. He doesn't deny what it deserves. I deserve to be rebuked in anger. I deserve to be disciplined in wrath. I deserve destruction. I deserve the flames of hell by all means. But I cry out, oh God, please do not give me what I deserve. Instead, be kindly disposed towards me. Spurgeon said, 
It were folly to pray against the golden hand which enriches us by its blows. He does not ask that the rebuke may be totally withheld, for he might thus lose a blessing in disguise. Rebuke is never pleasant. I went through it uh, uh, some time ago in a very serious matter, and it showed up, uh, the discipline showed up an issue that arose at work. I was distraught and heartbroken and fearful. But through all this, I saw the hand of God bringing discipline in my life to draw me back unto himself, to turn my eyes away from my sin and unto him. And what a blessing it is when God uses this to turn us to himself. Next, he says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Look to whom David looks. When he is suffering under discipline, he does not run from God. Rather, he runs to God. I remember counseling people before, and they would say, but Bill, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the depths of my sin. You don't know the depravity that I've sunk to. You don't know how far I've failed, how much I've run from God. There is no way that God can possibly forgive me for my sins. Implied. And their argument was, he can forgive you for yours because yours are minor in comparison to mine. Mine are too great. And I would tell them this often. I would rather run into the hands of an angry God than into the arms of a smiling devil. God may yet be merciful. When this same author had numbered the children of Israel and directly disobeyed God, an angel came down from heaven with an outstretched sword against the people of Israel. And the angel said, God will give you a choice of your punishment. And he ticked off three things. And David said, let me fall into the hands of God, for I know that he is merciful. Don't run from God when you sin. Run to him. Don't try to flee. Don't try to say, I'll seek some salvation elsewhere, or I'll seek some hope elsewhere. Or surely all he will do is bring down judgment and wrath upon my head, and why should I go before the just judge? Go before the just judge, because not only is he just, he is also merciful. He is filled with compassion. He is full of pity for his children. He is He is so filled with love that the Bible says he is love. Run to him and not from him. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Most Bible scholars believe that when he cries out for healing, that that part of this discipline was sickness. Now, if that was the case, let me throw in a little caveat really quickly. Don't assume that every bout of illness is disciplined for some sin. It could be that you are ill through some type of testing. Remember when the disciples came upon a certain blind man who was born blind from his birth, and they looked at Jesus, and they said, Who sinned, Lord, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, Neither. This isn't about sin. This is about the glory of God being revealed and the fact that I'm about to heal this blind man. Now, in some sense, all illness 
has been brought into this world because of original sin, because of the fault of our parents, because of what Adam and Eve did in turning their backs upon God. But not every bout of illness is automatically a discipline from God. However, in bouts of illness, it is wise for us to go before God, to search our hearts, to see if there is something that we have done and that God is disciplining us for. If this was illness, then David is crying out, heal me. I've suffered under this illness so long. Please heal me. Please remove the rod from my back. Only one Bible scholar I could find thought that this may not have been physical illness, but rather a spiritual illness. All the rest agree that it's likely physical illness. I tend to wonder myself, though, if he isn't just crying out with spiritual illness. And when he cries out, for my bones are troubled, this is the sense in which he is saying that the illness, whether spiritual or physical, goes down so deeply into me that even my bones are troubled. Where is the strength of the man? In his muscles, yes, but also in his skeletal frame. Take away the skeleton and we would be quivering lumps of bags of water on the ground. The skeleton is what gives us our upright stance. And he says, even not in my weakest parts, but in my strongest parts, I feel the, the, the judgment. I feel the discipline. I feel the rod upon my back. Please heal me. Spurgeon again said, urge not your goodness or your greatness, but plead your sin and your littleness. Acknowledge I'm a sinner and I'm small in your sight. I have no hope. Urge not your goodness or your greatness, but plead your sin and your littleness. And a man by the name of Archibald Simpson said, to fly and escape the anger of God. David sees no means in heaven or in earth and therefore retires himself to God, even to him who wounded him that he might heal him. He flies not with Adam to the bush, nor with Saul to the witch, nor with Jonah to Tarshish, but he appeals from an angry and just God to a merciful God and from himself to himself. Who knows but that God will have mercy. Then number three, my soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O oh Lord, how long? I feel my sin to my bones. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O oh Lord, how long? He can't even finish his sentence. But you, O oh Lord, what? And how long? How long what? Have you ever been in such a troubled condition that words fail you? And you know you should pray. You know you should go before God. But you find yourself unable to bring together some words that you can express your heart before him. I'm thankful for Paul's words in Romans 8 when he tells us that uh, when we do not know how to pray, the Spirit himself makes intercession For us, on our behalf, with strange groanings that cannot be uttered. And later he says that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for us. God not only hears the cleverly crafted words 
of the greatest person who can pray upon the earth. He also hears the groanings of the heart that can't even form those words. You who are parents, are you any less moved when your toddler struggles towards you crying and unable to articulate what is wrong? But obviously you can tell there is some measure of distress inside him or her and you just want to make the pain stop and help them out. And you try to give them words to say. Is it your hand? Is it your arm? Is something hurting? Are you sick? What's going on? Well, God, the Holy Spirit who searches our hearts, prays to God the Father on our behalf. And Jesus Christ, the great mediator, sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us on our behalf. How can we possibly lose when we have God praying to God for us? This is good news indeed. And so when we find ourselves completely inarticulate, if you're like me, I've listened to people who pray so powerfully and so well, and I've heard them craft these words together and go, wow, I really wish I could do that. I wish I could speak like that person does. But if I could have my choice between really articulate prayers or prayers that come from a burning heart of passion, I would choose the latter. Give me that any day. Even if they're the mere ramblings of a child before God Almighty, what are we anyway? We're all but children. So let us cry out with our hearts. Let us lift up our hands. Let us call upon the name of the Lord. Look at the Pharisee who can walk into the temple and can just his robes and proudly proclaim all of his good deeds and all of his self-righteousness, which is the most stinking sin in the eyes of God. And the publican who walks over to a corner and falls upon his knees and beats his chest and cries out, have mercy upon me, O God, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this man went away justified and not the other. Cry out to God, for he is merciful. Calvin said, God in his compassion towards us permits us to pray to him to make haste to succor us. But when we have freely complained of his long delay that our prayers of sorrow on this account may not pass beyond bounds, we must submit our case entirely to his will and not wish him to make greater haste than shall seem good to him. And Flavel said on this point, we may pour out our complaints to God, but not about God. David complains to God, but not about him. How long, O oh Lord? But be ready to hear Longer still. We will wait until just the right time. Unlike the potter who has to guess, take his best estimate of how long to leave that vessel inside the oven, the Lord God himself never pulls it out too soon or too late. His timing is perfect as are all of his ways. David cries out, Turn, O Lord! Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. When R.C. Sproul did a series of sermons on the life of David, he began by quoting a man who said that David was a man who did, never did anything by halves. I like that definition. When he was worshiping God, his whole being was in worship. When the ark was being brought back up from the land of the Philistines, actually from the house of Uzzah that had brought it up from the land of the Philistines, uh, uh, whenever it was being brought back up, 
David danced before the Lord. He played the part of the court gesture, the fool, believing that this would attribute greater honor to the king who was entering his throne yet again. And David danced in such a measure that Michael, Saul's daughter, looked at him and she scorned him in her heart. But David refused to repent of that. His whole heart was devoted to his king. When David sinned, likewise, his whole heart was given over to it. Whether lust or murder or whatever evil he had done, David had given himself over. He was a man of deep and abiding passions. I like that. If you can't tell by my preaching style. I like passionate. We should be passionate. I cannot imagine that David is praying at this point and saying, Eternal Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. No, he's passionate about this. He's feeling it. He's depressed. He's sorrowful. He's anguished. He is worried. He's concerned that perhaps God will cast him away. And he cries out out of his doubt in faith to turn, O Lord. Turn to me. Look upon me. Come to me. Make haste to deliver me. And what does he plead according to your steadfast love? Kevin mentioned it in last week's sermon. Steadfast love is that covenant love that God has by which he has made himself obliged to us. He has promised that he will care for us. He will love us. He will be to us a God. We will be to him his children. He will be to us everything that we could possibly long for or need or desire. It is all found in him. And his steadfast love will never be diminished. It will never be washed away. We never have to wonder whether God will love us today and despise us tomorrow. Whether he will accept us today and reject us tomorrow. Whether he will be pleased with us today and scorn and ridicule and cast us off at some future date. Why? Because this love is not rooted in time. It is an eternal love whereby God has set his love upon his elect, his chosen people. And it can never be diminished it can never be done away with he will stand by us no matter what god who has promised by himself will keep his promise not one child of his shall be lost spurgeon was fond of saying there will be no empty thrones in heaven no crowns that were meant for someone who didn't make it so david cries out not for justice, but for mercy. And he cries out, according to your steadfast love, remember your covenant that you have with me and restore me into a right relationship with you. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? He now comes to this argument, Lord. Not only should you remember me for your steadfast love, but if I'm cut off from the land of the living, how will I praise and worship you? How will I encourage others to do so? That's what he prays in Psalm 51 from last week. How many be able to teach transgressors the error of their ways? Restore me so that I may do this. Bring my heart back around. But Lord, if you cut me off, if you cast me into the grave, I won't be able to tell the living about the good things that God has done. But if you will spare my life, if you restore my health and well-being, then I will be able to proclaim the goodness of God and turn transgressors, sinners, back to you. This will bring glory and honor to you. It is pleasing in your sight. And so I plead with you, mighty God, 
Deliver me so that I may be able to praise you in the land of the living. And then he comes to these verses of pure heartbreak. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Do you know that there is a false kind of repentance? We see people sometimes who apologize, and only God can ultimately judge the heart. We see sometimes people who apologize for sin, and you wonder, are they remorseful because they sinned against the holy God or because they got caught? Our repentance should be genuine. I have offended a holy God. I have sinned against one who loves me with all of his heart. Who would do anything for me and has proven it in the fact that he has sent his son Jesus Christ to bear my punishment on my behalf. And I have sinned against him. Real repentance says, God, I'm sorry. If there were no punishment for sin, I would not want to engage in it because it is an offense to you. It is right that I should obey you, that I should seek to to fulfill your laws. I should do what is right in pleasing your sight. And I'm sorry that I have failed yet again. Forgive me. Oftentimes, it manifests itself with tears. Have you ever done this? It's not 100% necessary that you do. Thomas Watson said this. Some may say my constitution is such that I cannot weep. I may as well go to squeeze a rock as think to get a tear. But if you cannot weep for sin, can you grieve? Intellectual mourning is best. There may be sorrow where there are no tears. The vessel may be full though it once vent. It is not so much the weeping eye God respects as the broken heart. Yet I would be loath to stop their tears who can weep. God stood looking on Hezekiah's tears. I have seen your tears. David's tears made music in God's ears. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. It is a sight fit for angels to behold. Tears as pearls dropping from a penitent eye. There are times in my life when I have been so overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit by my own sinfulness, by my own unworthiness, when I've pulled aside the facade of goodness, because when we compare ourselves to others, we can always find someone who's worse off and go, I'm better than they are, so I'm basically good. But when we compare ourselves to the standard, the holy God, the thrice holy God, we find ourselves despicable and unclean and unworthy. And there are times in my life where it has actually left me lying on the ground, sobbing and weeping. Perhaps you're not quite as passionate as that, but that's okay. As long as in your heart, you're on the ground sobbing and weeping. Be broken. Be contrite. The proud man stands up and says, look at what I've done. The penitent cries out to God for forgiveness and mercy. Someone said that God can pass by the proud, but he looks upon the humble and penitent. Tears move him deeply. 
when my wife and I get into an argument, which is very rare, of course. But, but when we engage in an argument, I can withstand any kind of insult or ridicule or any kind of reasoning she can possibly give me. But the moment a tear falls down her cheek, I'm sorry, I am broken. I hate to see her cry. When your children come to you with tears falling down their cheeks, isn't your heart moved? And do you think that God is somehow less compassionate than you are? Do you think that somehow God hardens and steals his heart against those tears? Are you kidding? He treasures those tears up, the psalmist says. Those tears are precious to him. Oh, we want to remain proud. We want to say, look what I've done. Look at the good stuff I've done. But we need to come before him broken. Come up on your knees. Say, dear God, I'm sorry I've sinned against you. Forgive me. This is a person on whom God will look. This is a person that God will have pity on. The person who cries out to him. He says, I've made my bed to swim with my tears. I have drenched my couch with my weeping. I am sorry, Lord. I have sinned. Bernard says, how often has prayer found me despairing almost, but left me triumphing and well assured of pardon. We move now from the cries of the psalmist over his discipline and doubt. We move now to his confidence and deliverance. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all you, who, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. This is amazing to me. There's no explanation between verses 7 and 8. He just says, depart from me. The Lord has heard me. Get out of my sight. Be gone. Away with you. God has heard my prayer. Faith rises up. He who a little while ago was crying out, Oh Lord, how long? Now says, God has heard. And he rejoices in the fact of deliverance. God has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. He exalts in the knowledge that God forgives. God has been merciful. He has rebuked and he has disciplined, but not in anger and wrath. Instead, he has set boundaries to that and out of love and mercy and compassion has drawn David back into himself. And now he shoots into his heart the firm assurance that he is forgiven, that his sins are washed away, that he's accepted in Christ, that he has a hope of eternal life, that God will certainly spare him. Victory comes after the night of weeping. What happened to the young man in my story? Nicholas, as I was saying, reached down to grab his collar, call for the guards. The young man should be executed at dawn. He must be made an example, especially because of his high office as commander of the outpost. But as he reached for his collar, he remembered his father. And his love for his father. And he remembered that his father would be grief stricken and heartbroken. And all the shame and reproach would be brought upon him. 
And suddenly Nicholas was moved by something else, feelings of compassion and sorrow. He reached down to the desk and picked up a pen and wrote one word. And then quietly slipped out of the room. The next morning as dawn arose, the young man awoke from his sleep and realized that Soon the alert would be sounded that all men must assemble and the audit would be conducted and so forth. And he opened his drawer and he reached for his pistol. But at last his eyes glanced upon that paper underneath the tally of all of his debts. And those fatal words, a great debt, who can pay, was one word, Nicholas. When you and I have sat down late at night and have tallied up our sins against God and realized that we have not even gotten the half of them upon our papers because there are so many more that we have committed that we have forgotten about. When we have added it all up, we have compared ourselves against the thrice holy God and when we come to the end of ourselves and we have to write these words and say, a great debt who can pay? Underneath that we must see one blessed name, Jesus, and it is written not with ink, it is written with blood. It is a forever contract that can never be annulled. Jesus has paid your debt if you believe upon him. Your sins are washed away. The debt is remitted, it is erased, it is gone. And God the heavenly judge is also God the loving father who looks upon you and pardons you for Christ's sake. Our debts are gone, praise God. We can rejoice. He has heard our prayer. 